Today was a beautiful winter morning, right? I mean, you're in Syracuse, right? You might as well just accept it. You know what I mean? You're in for a long, miserable life. If every time there's snow, you're like, oh, I wish it wouldn't snow. You are going to (laughs) be miserable. You know, you might as well just like accept it. And you get up on these mornings and it's cold and it's snow on the ground and it's crunchy and it's blue skies and that's a rarity. And it's like, man, this is beautiful. I like the snow globe weather. You know what I'm saying? Don't worry. I'll be singing in the miserable choir by February. (laughs) But this time of year, you know, you just can't help but just, oh man, it's beautiful. And uh, God is, God is good all the time. Thank God for God, right? I mean, what would we do? I was talking to you know brother right before service uh, about uh, how well we're doing as a country. Uh, and you know, you you if you have eyes to see, if you have eyes to see, we're a country. We are a nation in decline. We are a nation in decline. The spark, the thing, the idea. Uh, that once made this nation good and great. You know, that, that I can't remember the French writer that came to the United States and he wrote this, this thing upon why America is great and what makes America great. And, and he said, it, I, I look for its greatness in, 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 the, in the great and vast fields and, and in its con- matchless constitution and in this and this. And he said, it wasn't until I went in the churches and I heard the pulpits flame with righteousness that I realize that America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, then America will cease to be great. Well, my friends, America has ceased to be good. Now listen, we can't be like Elijah. Oh, I'm the last one left and they're trying to kill me too, you know. No, no, remember what God said? I've reserved for myself, was it 500 or 5,000? Somebody help me. How many? Five, thank you. 5,000, I've reserved for myself 5,000 who have yet not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah thought he was all alone, and he wasn't. And I am so grateful and I'm so thankful that we can stop ourselves in the midst of our, 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 our uh, you know, patriotic woes, and we can say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I belong to a different kingdom. I belong to the kingdom. And guess what? He's never getting voted out. Guess what else? He's never going to get deposed. No Congress is ever going to say, we're going to stop him. They may try, and they will, and they have. But nothing can ever, ever, ever stop God from being God, from Jesus from being Lord, and from you and I from being his kids. Not only as kids, not just, you know, when we say, and we say it rightly so, that we were bought with a price and we're servants of the Most High God and we ought to have these attitudes of humility before God. But at the same time, we know from scriptures and we have the promises from God that we are called joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That we have been made heirs along with him, that we will rule with him when Jesus comes back to claim the kingdom, to claim the throne of David. And to rule over all the earth. Guess who's coming with him? You and I. Why? Why does he bring us with him? He wants us there. That's why. Because he wants us there. Does he need us? We are going to be a giant army that will be reduced to being nothing more than an audience. As Jesus fights the battle against the kingdom of Antichrist. 
The Bible says he opens his mouth and the, and the word goes forth as a sword and devours the armies of Antichrist. Jesus is the creator. The Bible says all things were created through him and, and, and by him and without him nothing was created that has been created. He spoke it into existence and Jesus Christ can speak it out of existence. And that's exactly what he's going to do. There's not going to be a battle. There's not going to be some huge fight. And oh, oh, they're winning. Oh, now we're winning. All oh, that, that. Jesus is going to say that's enough. It's done. And it's done. That's the God that we serve. So why does he let us struggle? So why in this life does God let us struggle? Why does God allow us to fight? Why does God put us in battles against the Malachites? Where our hands grow weary and we begin to to, to grow faint and we begin to be sad and, and we go through all of these emotional upheavals and we deal with all of these foes and all of these things. Why does God allow that? He's already won the victory. He's the king. He could do anything. He could speak it into existence. He could speak it out of existence and we're always seeking after that victory. And we're always seeking after that easy win. I always want to be just an audience. But why is it that God has chosen to allow us to be in the fray. There you go. There you go. God puts you and I through spiritual training day by day. Nikki had her cookie exchange uh, Friday night, and, and one of our beautiful sisters that was there pulled right into the mud slop, right? Right into the, like that. And I was over at Dad's house, right, stuffing my face with pizza and wings, watching movies. And I came back over, and I was pulling the van down, and I realized all the women are still there. So I was going to back right back out. And yet not because I don't love, love the women, but because I'm afraid of you when you're all gathered in one place. Okay, I'm sorry. It's the truth, all right? There's, there's too many of you. I feel overwhelmed, right? No, but the babies wanted to be dropped off, and I was, oh, I'll go back and hang out with Dad for a little while longer. When I get to the end of the driveway to drop them off, and one of our sisters is like, she's, she's, she's in it. And when you get in, this, in the Kirkville clay, baby, there ain't no getting out, you know. So I realized we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to pull her out. And, and, you know, nothing ever works just normally for me. You understand? Like nothing ever just goes smooth. There's no such thing as that for me. I got to find the toe strap. Where's the toe strap? It's in our dilapidated barn that ought to be knocked over. Now that's where it's at. And all the water runs to the barn, so it's a pond inside the barn. And where's the toe strap? It's in the pond. The pond's frozen. <laughs> The toe strap's frozen, all right, so I got to get it out, you know, and pull it up out of the ice, and it's covered in leaves and filth and clay and disgustingness. So I got to bring it in, I got to put it in the bathtub so I can put hot water on it so I can thaw it out and fill the tub with mud. Nikki's going to love this. And then I go back outside, and I go in and sit the toe, my, my toe strap, right, it's a big, thick, heavy-duty one. You could lift up, you know, a house with it. And I got to pull this Nissan out, you know what I mean? Well, it's got a beautiful little eyelet underneath the back of the car, and it's perfect size to just put a hook on. I don't have a hook. I've got a toe strap, you know, from Hades that's this thick, and it's made of steel, right? It feels like it's that braided, and I got to get it through this thing. And I can't get it through, and it's a struggle, and it's this fight, and and I've got a screwdriver and a <laughs> and a hammer. And then finally get it out and get it hooked up to Taylor's Explorer and pull the car. Now I've got to get it back off. And you know what happens when you pull a toe strap? It tightens. You know what happens when you pull a toe strap and it's tight and then it's wet? It tightens and you can't ever untighten it, right? So now I'm with the screwdriver. And, and the sister is just like, boy, you're really going through it, aren't you? You know, I'm like, yeah, thanks for mentioning it to me. 
And I just stopped and I said, you know, I said, it's so funny. Nikki mocks me daily. Daily. She mocks me. God loves messing with you, doesn't he? (laughs) Oh, he loves it. Because those are the things that drive me crazy. I'm kidding you now. I had a foreman once when I was a, when I was a helper. This, he was a madman, okay? He had a temper. He one time, this is how bad his temper was. His temper was so bad that one time he got so mad, he dropped to his knees and smashed his own head on the concrete floor. Now that's a temper, right? I'm like, well, I'm, I guess I'm doing okay. You know what I mean? I guess I'm doing okay. But that kind of thing, it's, and, and him and I had a similar personality, and it's, it's, not, it's not the, ma- the massive, the big things come, and I'm like, you know, hey, God's got it, God's got it, no, God'll take care of it. But the little minor inconveniences, I go off the deep end. I don't know if any of you guys are like that, or girls. But those are the things that drive me over the deep end to that. I, remember the Wizard of Oz and the Cowardly Lion just runs and dives through the window? Like, I just want to run and dive through the window. Because something won't work properly. And so what does God do every single day? He goes. And throws it in front of me. God did not send his only son to die on the cross. To atone me unto himself. So that I could lay back and just be a wimp. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to atone for my sins and to cover me in in his grace so that he can now put me through some vigorous spiritual training. And in spite of the fact that I fail again and again and again and again and fall short again and again and again, he says, don't worry about it, chubs. You're covered. Get up. Get up. Get up because you're covered. And I can get back up and I can dust myself off and I can say, I live before you, Lord. I live before you. Sorry about all that. You know, he takes it as far as the east is from the west. Thank God. He doesn't remember and hold grudges the way we do. Can you imagine? Because I think about the things that I did 25 years ago. And I think about the thing that I did last week or the thought that I had last week and I condemn myself over it. And Jesus Christ comes alongside and he says, but you've been forgiven. And you've been forgiven not just from the things that you did, but from the things you are doing and from the things you are going to do. But that does never give us an excuse to say, well, that's just the way it is and I don't need to fight. It's all about the fight. God wants soldiers. God wants warriors in a spiritual way for his kingdom. That's what he needs. He needs spiritual warriors. Easy to be a tough guy. Physically tough guy. It's America. Got a gun in the bag of the thing. What happens? Punch, kick. You know what I mean? That's not what it means to be a man of God. God calls us to show us, to show ourselves, and this is for you ladies too, to show ourselves as true warriors of God by imitating who? Well, what's the example? Gentle, meek, lowly, considering others better than himself, not seeking how he can ever be served, but rather how he can serve. And always putting people before himself and always seeing people from the standpoint of being sheep without a shepherd and lending out the hand to help. That's who Jesus is. And that's who he wants to conform us into. The problem is, 
It goes against our nature. It goes against everything that I am to be like Jesus. I want to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's what I want to do. I don't want to do the things that are hard. I want to do the things that are easy. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. That's why our marriages have trouble. Because we want the easy way. Always. The path of least resistance. No, 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 no. You sit down and you fight that spiritual battle with your husband, with your wife. We can't get together on this thing. That's because neither of you are dying to self. So go before God in the name of Jesus Christ together as a husband and a wife and figure out what does he say? What does the word say? And what would he have us to do? And that's walking in the spirit. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's that daily struggle. And it's so hard, isn't it? But you're covered. Hey, that's the purpose of the grace. That's the purpose of the blood. We are seated. The Bible says that we are sealed for the day of redemption. To tell us die. When Jesus said that, to tell us die, it is finished. Literally, it means paid in full. And so when a shipment would come across the seas and it would come into port and it would already have been its, its shipment and its purchase already would have been taken care of, it was already paid for, they would stamp upon it to tell us die. Paid in full. And so when the enemy comes to you and says, but you owe, but you owe, read it and weep, Satan. Read it and weep, baby, to tell us die. Paid in full. And we move forward. And we move on. Exodus chapter 17, starting with verse 8. We're going to talk about some Amalekites. Exodus 17, 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, "This, write this for a memorial in the book Notice what he says, write and in the book. We know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, he didn't write Joshua. He wasn't there for the whole thing, right? He died before that. He wrote the first five books. Notice God says, write this down. It's the first time we have a, count of, uh, a record of God telling Moses to write this down. And notice he says, write it in the book. In other words, Moses has already been writing. And this is not a book, it's not a journal, it's the book. 
Write this down in the book. This is important. This is for all generations. This is for the kids that sit in Berean Calvary Chapel in 2018. I want them to see this. I want them to study and understand to remember this day, Moses. So write this down in the book. And recount it in the hearing of Joshua. That I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now we understand that God is the creator of all, and because he's the creator of all, he is also the judge of all. And he reserves to himself the right to judge anyone at any time. It's according to his laws, his statutes, and uh, his holiness, not ours. We don't get to question God. We do. We do. Even to ourselves sometimes. But we need to understand that's not our right. He is the judge. And when it was time for the children of Israel to go into the land of Canaan, God said, I want you to wipe them out. And in the language there, it doesn't necessarily mean that you must kill every single person. That's the instruction. That's what we read. But so often when we read these things, that's not the end. God wiped out Amalek. But we're going to see there are still Amalekites in the future that came on the scene. But God reserved for himself the right to judgment. The land of Canaan was filled with wickedness, much like Sodom and Gomorrah, much like the earth at the beginning when it became so evil that the Bible says that every intention and thought of man's heart was only evil continually. It was so bad, it was so wicked that demonic forces literally took human form and had children with women. Now it may be bad, but it ain't that bad yet where demons are materializing and marrying humans. And we read about this strange occurrence, and it was so demonic in those days. And men's hearts were filled with such wickedness that God said, I must wipe these men from off of the face of the earth. And only Mo, uh, excuse me, Noah was found perfect in his generations. Not only was Noah a just man and a preacher of righteousness, but what that also means is that no one in his family had intermingled with this demonic seed. And God knew that the line of Jehovah, the line of, excuse me, Judah, the lion of Judah, the Messiah of Israel was going to come through that seed. And it must not be tainted. And so he was protecting the generations. And God sends a flood. Later in Abraham's time, Sodom and Gomorrah, God reserves for himself the right. Sodom and Gomorrah were such weevil, evil, and wicked cities that when the two angels came to visit Lot, the men, it said, from all over the city, all the men came to Lot's house and didn't ask, they didn't request, they demanded that Lot would send out these two men that they might abuse them in a bad way. They didn't ask. They demanded it. That's how wicked. And when Lot began to say, my friends, please don't do this wicked thing. Who made you a judge amongst us? You're a foreigner. Now you're, we'll do worse to you. That's when the angel said, you step aside. I'll take care of this. And God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It's his right. And Canaan was so awful. And the things that they did in the worship of their pagan gods was so dark and so evil 
and so demonic that God said the time of judgment has come. He specifically told Abraham, it's not time in your generation to go. Their sins have not yet reached its fulfillment. But there's going to come a time when it's going to be an end to my mercy and it's going to be time for judgment. And God sent the children of Israel in. But alongside of that, God gave us these encounters. God gave us these enemies, showed us these things for us to be a memorial. In other words, to be an example, to be a picture of. And it always seems to be a picture of the world or of sin or of the flesh and the battle that we have there. And so I want to talk about Amalek. Uh, You see, we read here that Amalek came and fought against uh, Israel in Rephidim. And we have this whole scene we're going to talk, talk about a little bit about Moses lifting up his arms. But first I want to talk a little bit about Amalek. And I'm going to go through some verses here. You can write them down. You can try to flip if you're fast and use your little uh, electronic iPhone Bibles. Uh, Or you can just sit and listen and trust me. (laughs) But you're Bereans. Go home and listen again and write these down. Make sure I'm not lying to you. Numbers chapter 14. When the children of Israel reject, you guys remember... Uh, Moses sends, sends 12 spies into the land, right, to spy out the land of Canaan. And they come back, and all, uh, all but two of the spies, 10 of the spies come back and go, Oh, man, oh, boy, I'm telling you right now, we can't do it. The sons of Anak are in the land. We were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. It's too hard. There's no way. It can't be done. Because they were trusting in the flesh, in their own ability. Instead of the God who they had watched part the Red Sea. The God who they had watched bring forth water from a rock. The God who they had watched bring manna from heaven and quail with the wind. And instead they looked to the flesh and they said, it's impossible for us. But Joshua... And Caleb, who were men of faith, who believed rather in what God's word said and not in their own ability, said, they are bread for us. We'll eat them up, in other words. They're bread for us. Why? Because God has said. But the children of Israel, of course, sided with the ten and begin to grumble and complain. And they even talk about stoning Moses. And so God said, as you know, He appears. Now God shows up in His holiness, in His presence, appears in the tabernacle, and He speaks to the children of Israel, and He says, you're not going in. And your little children who you said would be devoured in this land if you tried to go into it, they're going to enter in. But your bodies are going to fall in the wilderness. Now, what happens when when God has said this, they feel terribly, they feel badly, and in a false exercise of faith... They presume to go up into the promised land without God's blessing. And if you read chapter 14 of the book of Numbers, it says the Canaanites and the Amalekites attacked them and drove them back. Drove them back into the wilderness. Why? What do we see? Amalek, Canaan, pictures of the flesh. God had said, go in and inherit the promised land. They doubted. They didn't have faith. We can't do it. It's too much for us. God says, you won't do it. And now my blessing is not with you to go into the land of Canaan. Then they decided they were going to do it and be obedient. 
But God's hand was not in it. And so in their false testimony of faith, which was nothing more than a working of the flesh, I've done this, I've done this, go forth in, 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 you know, with, a, with my chest puffed out, like, you know, God wants me to do this and that, when in fact he has not told me to do that, or worse, has said, no, no. but this is a good thing, and so I'm going to go do it. And fail miserably, fail miserably. <laughs> when God says, go, go. But a false <clears throat> bravado of faith is not what God's looking for. The Amalekites and the Canaanites drove them back. <clears throat> Later in Numbers chapter 24, you remember Balaam, the son of Balak or whatever? Balaam was a prophet. And uh, the king of uh, one of the Canaanite kings, uh, Balak, right? His name was Balak, had called for Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel. You remember the story. And God tells him, don't go. <clears throat> he gets on his donkey and he starts to go and the donkey won't move, remember? And he starts to beat his donkey. And then he beats the donkey and beats the donkey. And, and the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. It's one of these great stories. And it's a, good, a, a great story for preachers. Because what God shows us is that I can speak through a donkey. I can speak through you. And so God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey turns. Can you imagine this? He's, he's out of his mind in a rage. Because he's been promised all these riches by the king to come curse Israel, and that's what he's after. And the donkey stops and won't move, so he starts to beat the donkey. And finally the donkey turns to him and goes, why are you beating me? I mean, haven't I been a faithful donkey? Balaam's so mad, he answers. If I had a sword, I'd kill you. And then God opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees an angel standing in the way with a sword. That angel's going to take your head off. And Balaam cries and moans, <laughs> the treasure, the treasure, the treasure. And God finally relents and says, okay, fine, go. But you will not say anything beyond what I give you to say. And when Balaam goes and he stands on this hill overlooking uh, where the, the nation of Israel is, is, is headed towards the land of Canaan, and he begins to prophesy, and instead God opens his mouth and God gives, gives him this prophecy, and he begins to bless the children of the nation of Israel. And in Numbers 24, 7, he says, He shall pour water from his buckets. Remember, we talked about water last week being a picture of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. And, he shall, uh, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag. And Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And his kingdom shall be exalted. Balaam is speaking in a prophetic manner. And he's talking about Israel having a, a kingdom that is higher than that of Agag. Which is a representation for us of sin in the flesh. And the water is a picture of the spirit. It's victory over the flesh by the spirit. Later in Judges chapter 6 and 7, when we talk about the account of Gideon, remember Gideon when he was judge of Israel during that time before the kingdom years. And remember Gideon uh, was chosen by God to go out and fight against Midian, right? We always remember that. The Midianites, that's how I always remember Gideon, Midian, it rhymes. Who did Gideon fight? Midian, Midian, Gideon, Gideon, Midian. And we all remember the account. Where God tells him, you've got too many men. And God whittles his army down to a couple hundred guys and then gains the victory over the, uh, uh, the, the Midianites through this small band of people because he tells Gideon, because I don't want you jokers taking credit. I want you to know and understand that this was by my power. But go back and read Judges chapter 6 and 7 again and you'll see who's mentioned with Midian. Guess who? 
Amalekites. Amalekites. It's Midian and the Amalekites. Midianites and the Amalekites. You'll see. You go back and read that. Write that down. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Saul becomes the first king of the nation of Israel, he is told by God to go out and fight against the Amalekites to wipe them out and to kill their king, Agag. You remember the story. Saul goes out, he wins a mighty victory, but what does he do? Instead of wiping everything out, he takes the Agag, the king of uh, the Amalekites, as a, a, a captor, and he takes the sheep and the goats and the flocks as spoils of war. And if you recall, Samuel then shows up and says, what's going on here? And Saul says, well, I've done all that the Lord has commanded. And Samuel goes, then what is the bleeding of sheep that I hear? What is that? <laughs> I hear in the background, Saul. Is that what God told you to do? Well, it's a spoils of war. It's, it's, just, it's just a natural. Is that what God said to do? And he spared Agag. And it was at that point in time that, remember, Samuel told Saul to obey. Because remember what he said. Oh, they're for sacrifice to God. That's why I saved all the sheep. To sacrifice to God. They're for, it's for you, God. It's not for me, I swear. Forgetting that God reads the heart. And Samuel says to, to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. And he goes on to say that rebellion is as witchcraft before God. You want to be a rebel? You want to be a rebel? You want to be, be, be rebellious against God? Go get your cauldron, get some eye of Newton, leg of toad, and make up a stew. You might as well, because in God's eyes, it's the same thing. That's heavy, ain't it? I don't know about you. I'm a rebel. I'm a rebel. You want to see me do something? Tell me I can't. Right? You want me to think something? Tell me I shouldn't. That's been my whole life. And that's what our nation is. Our whole nation was, began with what? Rebellion. We're rebels. We love it. <clears throat> we love to see a good rebellion story. William Wallace. Braveheart, remember? You've never seen it, see it. It'll feed all that stuff that you're not supposed to have in you. <laughs> rebellion against tyranny. <clears throat> against this, against that. And we tell ourselves that, and we paint ourselves a good story. I just like to rebel. I just don't like to submit. Right? I mean, that's a tough pill to swallow. Times in the past when, when, when a brother has come to me and said, you know what, you're wrong in this thing. This thing that, you do, that you're doing, or this thing that you said, or this, that's wrong. You know what I want to say? Well, screw you. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm being honest. That's what goes into the head. And then the Spirit of Christ comes alongside and says, You're right. I'm wrong. I submit to God's authority. That's a tough pill to swallow for us. God hates rebellion, He hates it. It's the same thing as witchcraft in His eyes. And that's heavy. 1 Samuel chapter 30, if you remember. The Amalekites burn Ziklag. You remember that town, right? Nice place this time of year. <laughs> Ziklag. You know, where do you live? Ziklag, I'm sorry. You know, 
That's where David and his men were staying. And while he was away, the Amalekites came in and carried away his wives and his children and the wives and children of all of his men. And so when they came back from being out fighting the battles, his wives and his children had been taken away by Amalek. And they rent their garments, and they wept, and they wailed, and they even talked about stoning David. It says in 1 Samuel 36, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters, but David. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In the midst of the attack of Amalek, in the midst of suffering loss because of the violence of the flesh, the violence of wickedness, the violence of Amalek, when all else and everyone else around him loses heart but David. You wonder why? Why did God say David was a man after his own heart? Why did God say, in spite of all David's failures and all the bad things he did, that he loved David so much? Why did he choose? But David strengthened himself in what? The Lord is God. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 30. The next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 31, going into 2 Samuel chapter 1, we have this interesting account of Saul fighting his final battle before the Lord allowed him to be defeated and killed so that David could take over the throne. Remember David's whole thing. When Saul was chasing him through the wilderness and trying to kill him, remember what David would always say? I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, God had anointed David as king over Israel. God had established it clearly and firmly that David was his man, didn't he? And Saul was clearly shown to be a man who was not about the business of God and instead was fighting against God's will. And yet when David was given a clear and present opportunity and an easy opportunity to take Saul's life, he refused to do it. I will not ever lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. This is the Lord's battle. If the Lord wants to establish me as king over Israel, then he will depose Saul and he will put me there. But I will never lift my hand against... It's amazing... Because he had all the power and all the ability and all the opportunity to elevate himself. And he wouldn't do it because he made it about the Lord. But if you recall, Samuel or Saul has this final battle against the Philistines. And him, his, both of his sons fall in this battle. And Saul is, is grievously wounded. Um, and it actually says, it's, it's interesting, uh, in chapter 31... First uh, Samuel chapter 31, it says that Saul fell on his sword. But then when we get to the next chapter, which is Second Samuel chapter 1, a young man, a runner, comes into the camp of David. And when David inquires of Saul and his sons, he says they're, they're fallen. And he says, how did they fall? And he tells David this tale. He tells David that he came upon Saul, and Saul was leaning on his spear, and the enemy was hard after him, was chasing after him, and was going to overtake him. And so Saul, this young man says, so King Saul asked me, please run me through with my sword. Please kill me so that my enemies don't overtake me. And the young man killed Saul. And when Saul says, who are you? What's your lineage? Remember what the young man said? I'm an Amalekite. I'm an Amalekite. Why does the Bible even say that? That's for you and me. 
because God, in writing the history of the nation of Israel, this is the amazing thing about the Word of God. This is their history. This is the history book of Israel. And all through the history of the book of Israel, God is showing you and I spiritual lesson after spiritual lesson after spiritual lesson that they don't even understand. But he's given you eyes to see it because of the Spirit of God, because of your belief in Jesus Christ. And so the Amalekites, we understand why God mentions this. It's a spiritual lesson that God is teaching us. The Amalekites never stopped pursuing Saul, did they? Saul let the Amalekites live. Saul let Agag live. Saul chose for himself the spoils of war with Amalek. And in his dying breath... An Amalekite was there to end his life. And sin will never, ever let up. You'll never look back and see sin has lost its breath and it's fallen behind you in the rearview mirror. Remember Jurassic Park? When you were driving the Jeep and the Tyrannosaurus Rex is chasing him? And he, and he looks, and it's this cool thing in the film where he always says on the bottom of your, of your little side mirror, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. <laughs> and you see the Tyrannosaurus, rawr, you know. Hey, man, hey, man, remember that scene? That's Amalek. That's Amalek in your life. That's Amalek in my life. And until we destroy Amalek, until we wipe Amalek out, it will always, always be there until our dying day. You remember what David said to this young man? He said, how was it that you were not afraid to lift your hand against the Lord's anointed? And David kills the guy right there. David knew just what to do with the Malachites. David knew just what to do. Hey, and he had his own struggles. And he had huge faults and failures in his life. But he sure knew what to do with an Amalekite when he saw one. The main antagonist in the book of Esther, moving forward from there is a man named Haman. Remember? Hang him as high as Haman. The book of Esther, has, has, if you've never read the book of Esther, whew, what an awesome book. Ruth's another one. But Esther is this incredible historical account of the nation of Israel in captivity and Satan within that captivity seeking to absolutely wipe out and annihilate the nation of Israel. Why? To prevent Messiah from being born. And God raising up this young girl to save the entire nation. There's not a Jew that lives today that can't look back and say, thank God for Esther. Thank God for Esther. If you've never read it, it's just a fascinating, amazing account too. If you've never read it, I highly recommend that you read it. But the main antagonist in the book of Esther is a man named Haman. He's the one that gets the king to decree that all the Jews would be put to death. His, his desire, his goal is to see them wiped out off the face of the earth. And the Bible refers to him as Haman the Agagite. Now there is no Agagite nation. And so when you, when, you, when you read that and you do some study into that, what you find out is Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And calling someone an Agagite means one of two things. Either there were specifically, and there's two lines of thought on this, okay? Pick your poison. Either when you call someone an Agagite, you're either calling them a, a, a direct descendant of Agag, the king of Amalek, of the Amalekites, okay? You're either calling him an Amalekite or it's also believed that some of the most heinous enemies of the nation of Israel were referred to as Agagites 
to make that connection between them and Amalekites as being that main antagonist against the nation of Israel. Either way, the point is made, right? Either way, the point is made. All these years later, after the kingdom years, this is in between the kingdom years, after the times of the kings and before Jesus Christ, when they're in that time uh, of, of, of captivity, and the Amalekites are still there. Just one guy, whether he was actually an Agagite and actually a descendant of Agag, king of Amalek, or whether he was just a horrible enemy and they referred to him as, as such, there it is. There it is. To wipe out a nation, to wipe them off the map. Read the story. Awesome. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 says this. <clears throat> Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 says this. For the flesh lusts against the spirit. If you can't amen this, then you ain't paying attention. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. I mean, for heaven's sakes. Does that not sum it up? The Spirit of God that lives in me because of Jesus Christ and my belief in Him. The Spirit that God has given me continually. It's never ending. It wars against my flesh and my flesh continually, never endingly, wars against the Spirit and causes me to do the things that I do not wish. Paul talks about that. The things that I want to do, I don't do. It's the things that I don't want to do. Those are the things that I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? And then what he says after that? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's the victory. But always, always, the spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. Moses here is an example for us of walking in the spirit. And let's look at how that happens. We're going we're gonna to finish this right up. Moses stands there, and we have this strange account, this strange account, where Moses is holding his hands up with the rod of God, of course, and as long as he's holding his hands up, <clears throat> the nation of Israel is winning. And when his hands fall, the Amalekites start to win. So what do they do? They come around him, him and his elders, and they hold as they sit him down on a stone... They push a stone up to him, I guess, roll it up, sit him down on the stone. Can you imagine this? There's a battle going on, man. Like swords and spears are flying in clubs. And up here, what do you, and you can you imagine you're like a bot, you're, or you're in the battle and you look up and that's what you see? Moses is like this and they're rolling up a rock behind him and sitting him on a rock. And, and then they're finally, they're holding his hands up because every time he drops them, they start to lose the battle against Amalek. And so they hold his arms up the whole time. It says, till the setting of the sun... That battle went on all day long till the setting of the sun. And finally, what happens? The children of Israel had victory. What does this mean? It's universal. Surrender. I surrender. Listen, when we worship, we, the lifting of the hands, you ever really think about what does that mean? What does that really mean? You know, um, who's that Christian comedian? He does a whole thing on the different hand. 
Tim Hawkins. YouTube it. Tim Hawkins hand raising. He's got a whole different thing about all the different way people hold their hands. It's very funny. Let me tell you what the basic concept is. It's that old hymn, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. That's why we lift our hands. It's in that moment of worshiping God and feeling his spirit inside of your heart and understanding and knowing what he's done and who he is to you and that he is everything. And it's that surrender. I, I surrender all. Lord, you are everything. You are it. You're all that I need. I surrender all to you. That's all it is, man. Anything other than that is just a bunch of showboating. And there's plenty of that. Amen, church, right? We see that. And sometimes that's why we're, we're prone to not want to lift our hands. You know, lift because of showboating. I want people to look at me and make a spectacle of me. Whatever's happening in your heart is what's happening in heaven. Jesus was very clear about that, wasn't he? We talked about giving an offering, your tithes and offerings. It, you're wasting your time if it's not coming from your heart, right? When God just instructs you to give, you give, and great is your reward in heaven. Well, everyone's looking. You see, everyone see the, did, they, did, they, did they see? They might have thought it was a five. Flash it again. It's a 50. Boom goes the cannon, right? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the hypocrites that do that have their reward in full, being praised by men. You do it secretly. You do it quietly. You do it before God, and great is your reward in heaven. Just like our prayer, just like our fasting, just like everything that we do for God, it's from here to him. That's the only way. Whatever's happening in your heart is happening in heaven, for good or bad, and now God's watching. I surrender. I surrender. And Moses couldn't even surrender by himself, could he? <laughs> and so what do we see? We see Joshua and the other guy. What was his name? I want to say it right. Aaron, thank you. Haran, 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 Haran. Aaron and her. <laughs> thank you. Aaron and her holding up his arms. What is God showing us there? What's God showing us? Can you do it alone? No. Considering church and talking about church, I always tell people, church is not here because it's a requirement of God. Church is here for you. Remember when, when, when Jesus Christ, uh, his disciples uh, were being criticized by the, by the Pharisees because they, they weren't keeping the ceremonial law. And remember Jesus points to, remember when David went to the temple and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful for a man to eat? And remember what he said to them? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. My goodness, they did so much work in trying to not work. They couldn't even see it. They did so much work in trying to not work. It's supposed to be rest, guys. It's supposed to be rest. This is for us. It's not contrary to us. It's not some obligation. We come here because it's for us so that we can worship our God and so that we can study his word together and encourage one another because you cannot hold up your hands alone. You need your family. You need your friends. You need your church. Anybody that God brings into your life who you know you can call and you can say, brother, sister, I'm struggling. I'm about to kill this fool. You know what I mean? Now listen, that's your husband. You can't talk like that. <laughs> You need that. We all need that. Someone to help hold our hands up. Amen? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the freedom that we have to be here together and to love one another and encourage one another. Father, we pray that you would write these truths on our hearts. Uh, Lord, that they wouldn't be something that we forget. Lord, help us to learn the lesson of Amalek, uh, Lord, to never, ever, ever retreat or surrender against the struggle of the flesh, Lord, but to continue to fight and allow your spirit to course through us, Lord. Help us to walk in the things of the spirit, Lord. Help us to study your word. Help us to pray more. Help us to sing songs of worship before you more, Lord. Help us to, to focus and contemplate on the things of the spirit, Lord, so that we might be strong in the spirit to fight the fight against the flesh, Lord. That's never going to stop. Lord, have your way in us and through us, Lord, and use us, especially this time of year, Lord, when people are open, when he, people are hearing songs about Jesus on the radio every single day and they don't even realize it. Lord, help us to be ambassadors in this time to point people to the true cross of Jesus Christ and the real reason that he came. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do. Lord, send your son. <laughs> Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, we're ready. In the meantime, Lord, help us to serve you just as you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys.